Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Culp. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I have combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. For our very first interview, I sat down with best-selling author, motivational speaker, and former New York City firefighter, Matt Long. Matt not only survived the terrorist attacks on 9-11, but he goes on to be hit by a 20-ton bus on an early morning bike ride. His doctors gave him a 5% chance of living. Well, 43 surgeries later and one very small step at a time, Matt finds his way back to the finish line of the New York City Marathon, completes an Ironman, and is named one of the fittest men in the world. He talks openly about the depths of his depression, why he wouldn't take back the day of his accident, and how the words, I will, ultimately saved his life. Here's today's interview with Matt Long. Thank you for being here, Matt Long. Thanks for having me, Kimmy. I'd love to learn a little bit about your upbringing, the backdrop of your life. What was it like growing up in the Long household? Well, never a dull moment in the Long household. Uh, I'm one of nine children. Uh, I'm right up at the top. I'm number two. It's split seven boys, two girls. Always a lot going on between sports and, and, and you know just different activities. My dad owned a small ice cream parlor, which was great. It was heaven growing up. But when you're young, you don't really know anything about business. You know, just had owns an ice cream parlor. It's awesome, free ice cream. I had no idea until, like I said, I had no idea until later in life. What, when you become an adult and start fending for yourself financially and start making decisions for yourself, when you, know, you start, hey, Dad, how did this happen for you guys? And then they open up and tell you. you know, there was a, pasta goes a long way with, uh, you know, on, on, on a low budget. So there was lots of nights with pasta and you know, fish sticks or whatever. But my parents gave us everything they could give us. There was days where they bypassed the meal so that the nine of us could eat, and they ate what was left over. And um, the, those things were hidden from us 100%, never had an idea. Uh, Christmases were great. Birthdays were great. Our friendships and the activities, we were never withheld anything, uh, which was, I commend them for that. Who were you as a teenage Matt Long, both on the inside and the out? How did the outside world see you? How did you see yourself lying in bed at night? Uh, I would, I would uh, say that the outside world probably saw me as this cocky you know, athlete running around the neighborhood with tons of energy. Um, who was I as a teenage boy? Uh, you know, I, I dreamed a lot about... Um, Sports, you know, I, again, I, I just outed myself that I wasn't a student, but I, I wanted to play basketball. I dreamed about playing basketball, but I was always up for a challenge. So I did play a ton of different sports in, in my teenage years, in high school and, and in you know, upper middle school. I'm very competitive, always looking to, um, I think it's fair to say that I was always looking to defend someone who was unable to defend themselves. How do you think your childhood being one of nine kids, shaped the young man you eventually became. You're incredibly competitive and driven. Where do you think that comes from? I mean, the competitiveness started with nine of us at dinner, you know, just trying to get to whatever was uh, good in the middle of the table. But there was also a full team. If we wanted to go out in the back and play basketball, I, we always had someone on the opposite side. So the competitiveness came from inside the family, and then it came from the external friends of the older brother, friends of the younger brother, very tight group. And going back to that competitiveness, that tenacity, and lying in bed dreaming about sports, 
you have a great story about trying out for the college basketball team and that process. Will you share that with me? So I went to Iona College up in New Rochelle. I remember going to, say, to a couple of friends that were up there. I remember going visiting. And I, look, I had this dream since I was a kid to play college ball. And I was, I was still in shape. I was still playing, playing different summer leagues and stuff like that. I got up to, Saint John, uh, to Iona and boom, early October, November is basketball tryouts. Tried out my first year as a sophomore. And I remember after two or three tryout sessions, the coach said, hey, thanks for coming, Matt. You know, better luck next year. Before I left the gym, I asked the coach, I said, coach, outside of growing 10 inches, what can I do to improve my game? That possibly you know, I may be able to fill this dream I had as a boy to play college ball. He gave me some pointers and, you know, kind of shooed me on my way. Same thing happened junior year. Junior year, I go in for my second tryout. Same coach, same result. And I had the same question for the coach. And I said, you know, coach, I'm, not, I'm just not giving up on this dream yet. I'm, I'm enjoying college. I'm doing other things in life. But I really want to play college ball. Gave me some more pointers and, you know, off I went. And my senior year would be my third tryout. But I went for tryouts. And when I saw the assistant manager, I said, hey, Frank, how you doing? He said, good. He said, I said, where's, uh, you know, where's coach? He's like, oh, he's gone. I was like, oh, I figured this is my third time in front of him. I got a really good shot. I'm going to make this team. And we had a new coach. Gary Brokaw came from Notre Dame. And Frank tells me, look, he's just doing this as a formality for the NCAA regulations. He, he doesn't want to walk on. So I was kind of demoralized right there. I was just kind of like set back. I was like, oh, great. What am I going to do? So coach came in, sat 24 guys on the sideline that were going to try out, and we watched the scholarship players practice for two hours. Uh, everyone was kind of shaking their head like, that's it? He said, tomorrow, 5.30 in the morning, see you here. So laced up my sneakers. You know, I was all ready to go. Today's the day. We're going to practice. We're going to show them what we got. We sat on the sideline, watched 13 scholarship plays, play ball for two hours. Coach did the same thing at the end of that practice, and that went on for two weeks. Two weeks. 24 became 12, 12 became four, and on the, the, the 14th day, there was three of us. And the coach, after practice, pulled the three of us aside and started drilling us, running us up and down the court. And he said, you three have showed me that you're committed and want to be on this team. I don't want to walk on, but there's a chance I'm going to take one person. You've already shown me day in and day out being on time, sitting here with your mouth shut, watching the players play. Drilled us for an hour, two hours, dripping sweat, and he th threw the ball at us and said, first one to hit two foul shots is, in the, is on my team. I flash back to when I was a kid, and I'm in the backyard, and we had a kind of a makeshift backyard. It wasn't a perf bas perfect basketball court layout. You had the cellar door over here, the various landmines from the dog, and I remember going in the backyard, taking my foul shots, and... Mom yelling, dinner's ready. I'm like, oh, five more minutes, Mom, you know, five more minutes. And she's like, Matt, let's go, dinner's ready. And I'm like, oh, man. But I remember, okay, Mom, coming, no time on the clock. It's, the score's tied. And I would take two foul shots, win the game. And that dream came back to me. I'm like, this is awesome. I've been here for two weeks, just sweated for two hours. I'm on the line for two foul shots. It brought me back to my childhood. I drained two foul shots and played college basketball my senior year. I love it. No, it was great. It was a great experience. And, and I, I say played, and those who know me, that when they tune in, they'll go, he never played, which is true. I was the 2020 man. If we were up 20 or down 20, I was getting in the game. But you were on the team. I was on the team. I want to fast forward into your 20s. At 25, you'd built a real career for yourself, owning bars in New York City. You're a New York City firefighter. Paint a picture of your life at that time. I, I was on top of the world. I, I took a chance. I was an accountant out of college, and it really wasn't for me. Uh, I found out that uh, I was organizing more happy hours than I was really worrying about my Monday to Friday job. So when I left the accounting industry, I decided to open a bar. I had taken the fireman's test back in high school just as a backup for life. And, you know, my brother Jim really wanted to be a fireman, so I did it with him. It wasn't really in my vision. We opened up Third Along in 1991 together, Jimmy and I. And, you know, he was working a job and I was going to run the bar. And the bar really took off. We, we met a ton of different people that really became 
um, friends, family, you know, just we've been to so many weddings and it was just great. Fire department calls after a year, which was even better. So now I have a, a, a solid career, I have health benefits. And, you know, I once, once going into the academy, I realized like, wow, I, I may not have been called to this, but I, but I love it. Like I really loved it from the academy on. Um, but it was great. I could work two forty-eight, two twenty-four hour shifts a week, and the rest of the days I could be working at the bar. Who's better than me? Twenty-five years old. I have a, a very popular bar in, on the east side of Manhattan, and I'm a firefighter. I mean, uh, it was great. September eleventh, two thousand one. Walk me through that day for you. Well. I'd have to start with the night before, so September 10th. If your firehouse is short-handed, they usually look around different firehouses and say, okay, this firehouse has a surplus of one. We're going to send them up to work with you. So September 10th, my brother Jim and I were both firefighters. Jim was sent to work with me and another guy from his firehouse, Rob Curatola. So my brother Jimmy and I were in the inside team uh, at 43 Truck where I worked on September 10th. And it wound up being a, a, a slow night. And I just remember, you know, kitchen talk, kitchen banter, just laughing, having a good time. Firehouse, every firehouse across the country revolves around the meal. What we're doing for dinner, what we're doing for lunch. My brother and I just hung out with all the guys, laughing and talking all night. And then that morning, woke up early for breakfast, and then we find out that a plane had hit the, you know, tower on uh, downtown. And at that moment... We're watching TV. We're, we're all kind of letting it unfold like, hey, it was just an accident. What, what's going on? No one really saw it on TV at live. We don't know what size plane it was. But Rob Curatola and Jimmy had to go back to their firehouse. Now, like, we have a major emergency going on in Manhattan. So Rob left and to get down to his firehouse early. It was only a few miles away in Manhattan, but he had to get down quicker than Jimmy. Jimmy stuck around with me, watched a little more unfold. And when the second plane was about to, to strike, my firehouse was called to go. So Jimmy left my firehouse and went to his. Now, the events of the day unfold. I realized, you know, Jimmy and I, we, we see each other at 2 in the morning, and we realize you know, we're both okay. Rob Curatola perished. And if Jimmy hadn't stuck around to kind of let, watch things unfold with me or hang out with me at my firehouse for that 10, 15 minutes longer, he would have been with Rob and he would have, might have been down there uh, earlier. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, Rob was a great guy. All the firemen and policemen that passed away that day, they were all great people and they did a, a, a courageous thing. But I'm, I'm forever grateful that he stuck around for, for that extra five minutes with me in the morning. You know, he, he's still here incredible. So at that period, you're 25, New York City firefighter, mm-hmm. owning the bars, and 9-11 happens. Yeah. Well, not, I'm a little older when 9-11 happens. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm like my early 30s. Talk to me about the weeks that followed. What was the reality of your day-to-day life during those weeks? You can paint a picture mm-hmm. of that time. Well, you know, I, I remember a vivid picture of, of, of September 11th at around, you know, midnight, two in the morning when my fire truck was actually first told to, okay, go, go, go home for the night. And um, Manhattan was a ghost town. There were pockets of people still sitting around, maybe at some cafes or bars, um, kind of, I guess, going over what, what has gone down for the day. And we, we had extra people on the truck, so it was a beautiful night. We were sit, I was sitting on top of the fire truck as we were driving up 3rd Avenue. And, you know, still not 100% um, absorbing what happened, the events of the day, knowing that people are missing. Um, there was silence and a, and a smell in the city that was just, you know, just really odd. And then every once in a while, like I said, you go by this pub and there's an outdoor cafe and people sitting there, they'd clap, they'd wave. Um, so the, the first 24 hours was, was like bizarre world. You know, I, I have no idea what's going on. I didn't break down uh, until I got home to my apartment 
um, around 3, 3.30 in the morning and called my, my mom. And that was the first time I like, like really lost it, crying and I, I have no idea what happened. This is just, what I saw was just unbelievable. We're hearing all these names of who's not around anymore, who's missing. You know, and you can't just, at that early stage, you can't accept it. But, you know, it turned out that all the men and women that, that I, friends that I had, whether they were firemen or not, had, were perished, had perished. Um, so for the first couple of weeks, we were busy working, doing our job. And when I was done with the pile, ground zero, and I was working my firehouse, they changed our schedules. Who so you worked 24 hours, went home, came back, worked 24 hours, came home, came back. And it went on for like a month like that. But there was a moment... And I really can't tell you what the incident was, but it was between the funerals, between, you know, having to go back down there and dig people up and find people, uh, realize who's missing and who you're never going to see again, uh, where alcohol took over. And I was depressed, but hiding it, drinking. The bars were still operating. Um, Most of the bars in Manhattan were, were, wasn't Manhattan nightlife as Per the norm, it was like everywhere you went was a fundraiser for someone who passed. Everywhere you went was they were raising money for the firefighters, raised money for the police officers, raised money for, you know, Jane Doe from Queens. It's just it, nightlife was way different. Um, and I was by by to be honest with you, they, they were delivering beer to firehouses, and it was acceptable. And I just, as a fireman, I always prided myself, pride myself on being. So happy to go to work. There's not many people in this world that love going to work. Firemen love going to work. And weeks, months after 9-11, I didn't love going to work anymore. And I couldn't go to work if I wasn't sipping a beer. And my whole outlook on life had changed. How had it changed? You know, quite frankly, I'd stopped dreaming. You know, even though I dreamed when I was a kid to play basketball, I realized that... When I'm happiest, I'm dreaming of the next best thing, whether it's an athletic event, whether it's a challenge, whether it's my, my um, social life, whether it's getting married, have kids. I was always dreaming about that next best thing and, and, and striving to, to make that happen. And that made me happy. After September 11th, I had stopped looking forward to the future, like time had stopped. And I became depressed. I became a little more grouchy, short with people. Um, got overweight, was, like I said, wasn't even happy going to work anymore, and I needed that to change. And what was um, the moment that that changed for you? Well, so just going back a little bit is that when I realized I stopped dreaming, I, I had to start setting some goals for myself. I, had, I really had to start looking forward to something. So a good friend of mine had asked, hey, um, like I said, I was always up for a challenge. He said, hey, you want to do a triathlon? And I was like, sure. He's like, well, what are we doing it for? I'm like, oh. he's like, well, we're going to raise money for, uh, for the Leukemia, Leukemia Lymphoma Society. We're going to, you know, we'll, we'll go out, we'll ask people to, to sponsor us, and then we'll go to Florida and we'll do this race. So I said, okay, great, I'm in. I said, but I have to buy a bike and I have to learn how to swim. Now, I knew how to swim. I grew up on the beach. But did I know how to swim in the pool, like, for a mile? No. So I, I needed to do that stuff. So, great. My friend just implanted a goal in front of me. I accepted the challenge, and I, 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 I took it. I just like, let's go. And I quickly realized that I was overweight and out of shape because I couldn't run around the, the six-mile loop in Central Park with the, with the rest of the crew that was training for this race. So I, the beer got pushed aside. Training got more serious, um, and I quickly got in great shape. Was no longer complaining about a bad back. Was happy about going to work. And after six months' time of training, I went and did this race in Florida, and I got bit by this endurance bug. The, it was just amazing. I was like, where's my next race? Where's my next I just uh, online looking where I can sign up for the next race. Got a better bike. I did this, and, and, and I got into the best shape of my life. I did, I, did, um, I did 17 triathlons my first year from April to November. And I was just like, this is great. I'm going for the creme de la creme. I, I want to do an Ironman triathlon. And explain what an Ironman triathlon is. So an Ironman triathlon is the, the full distance, the Mac Daddy. It's 2.4-mile swim, 112-mile bike ride, and then a, a marathon, a full marathon, 26.2. 
you have 17 hours to finish. 17 and hours. And how many months before were you overweight, drinking beers? So my, I started in this state in- state of depression. I, <laughs> I started this in January or February of 04, started my training, and my IMN was July of 05. So 14 months. Got it. So it's 2005, you've completed your first Ironman, run the New York City Marathon, and qualified for the Boston Marathon, which is a huge deal. Yeah, that's big. And for, as for runners go, that's, that's big. Did you feel on top of the world? Couldn't get any higher. I'm a firefighter. And, and I really quickly realized that the best tool in the bag was me. So it went hand in hand with work. I had to be in great shape to be a fireman. Uh, not everyone follows that rule. It's obvious. There's 10,000 of them across the city, and not everyone's in great shape. But, uh, but for me, that, that was important. So it's serving you huge, both personally and professionally. Yep, 100%. And little did you know that weeks later you would be hit by a bus, given a 5% chance of living. Um, the book really set the stage beautifully. I know it was an early morning, just three days before Christmas. And there was a transit strike in the city. The bus was privately chartered to pick up a bunch of bankers and get them to Wall Street during the strike. And at the same time, as you take off on your bike to ride to the fire station, what was it, 5.30 in the morning? Oh, 5.30. Walk me through that morning. Oh, well, I was out at a Christmas party the night before. And you didn't want to miss this party. This guy threw a great party, so you didn't want to miss it. But I was at a Christmas party the night before, and the reason why I was getting up at 5.30 in the morning was because now I'm trying to balance life. I'm trying to be good time, Matt, especially the holidays, but I'm also trying to, to train. If you're training for Ironman or distance running, it, it's not a part-time thing. So I had an appointment with my firefighters to swim at 6 before work. I set the alarm. I, I get up. It was so cold, 18 degrees. Wind chill was below zero. Uh, and the only way for me to get to work was on my bike. There was just, there was no other way because of the transit strike. I got about three blocks from where I lived, and that bus we talked about decided to make a right-hand turn all the way from the left side of 3rd Avenue. And, you know, I, I vaguely remember putting my left hand up in the air and trying to bang on the window, and then I was sucked underneath the bus. And from there on... Uh, anything I've written about or am able to speak about, I was told because uh, this is my first like, lesson for this accident is that the mind is such a powerful thing. I blacked out and I was semi-conscious, but I, my mind said, he doesn't need to remember this. If he makes this, you know, he'll never do anything again if he remembers this. It blacked out my memory Weeks before, months before, like I didn't remember traveling with friends. I didn't remember the party. I didn't remember who I was dating. I, I didn't remember anything until people told me, and then boom, it snapped back into my life. But um, but so the accident itself, I had no vivid memories until later on, and the biggest memory came back when I actually watched a videotape of it. So I watched a video of me actually getting sucked under the bus. You know, big white bus cyclist. Big white bus, no more cyclist. And that, that was kind of uh, mind-blowing. What was your experience watching the footage? I was told I didn't want to see it. Um, but because I didn't remember it, I challenged myself to watch. It was, uh, yeah, it gave me goosebumps. It, it kind of was a very hollow feeling where I was just looking and I'm like, it wasn't gory or anything. It just, I was gone. And now the camera's still, and there was no sound or anything, but the bus has stopped, and, and we're waiting for the first responders to come to get me out. I was underneath. Yeah, it was, it was kind of uh, gut-wrenching. What is your first memory of waking up? My first memory waking up in the hospital, my brother Jim was there at, at the bedside with a bunch of doctors, and they were kind of slowly kind of taking me out of the coma that I was in. And I just remember this big bright light and my hands were across my chest kind of resting on something. And I looked up, I saw my brother and he's, you know, they kind of eased me into it. And I'm like, where am I? And I, my brother says, Matt, you're in the hospital and um, you were in an accident and you're, you're, in, you're in good hands. And I'm kind of moving my head, looking around a little bit. And I look at it, I try to get up. I can't get up. 
I tried to get up again, and they keep telling me, calm down, relax, you take it easy. And I said, no, 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 when, when, when can I go home? When can I go home? And at that point, my doctor uh, says to me, uh, you're not going home for quite a while. And I tried to pull on this thing that my hands were resting on, and it was a piece of metal. It was what they call an external fixator that was in through my abdomen holding my pelvis together because my pelvis was shattered and it, it was holding it together so it could heal. And I also had one on my leg. And that's when I kind of like really kind of lost it. I didn't get the grasp of what happened to me. But, um, but days after they were like, look, you were hit by a bus and this is what's going on. And I just laid in the bed for the next three months. You talked about a conversation you had with one of the lead doctors who was in the operating room and what he had said to the residents who were treating you after the accident. Can you share that conversation? Yeah, I, I, I think you're referring to the conversation I had with Dr. Lorich. Um, you know, I remember after making the recovery and, and you know, now I'm working on my quality of life, I, I always went back to see him. We always went out to dinner, drinks, whatever. And I said to Doc, I said, I, 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 how do you do this? Like, like, a guy comes into your operating room in the condition I was in. How, how do you remain calm? How do you tell your residents? Like, uh, what, what, what's your plan? And he, very matter of fact, they looked at me and said, um, he goes, oh, it was easy. He goes, I told him you were an academic exercise. And I said, excuse me? He goes, well, I said, what would you do for him if he was going to live? And we just practiced. I said, so I was practice. He says, yep, you were an academic exercise until we realized that we weren't dealing with an average person. Until we realized that you qualified for the Boston Marathon. Until we realized that your heart and lungs were so conditioned that you, you may survive this insult. That's what they called it. You know, the level of insult my body was able to absorb. And then we worked harder. And you're living proof that you're here. So, yeah, I, I mean, um, my doctor, who's no longer with us, um, was, was, was a good friend, and, and I owe him a lot. But it was an if. It wasn't, we're saving his life. Let's, let's go through the exercise and act as if this was somebody who I was be 100% saved. if. Yes. I was an if on, they didn't want to waste blood. I, I, I went through 68 units of blood in, in 10 hours. And the nurses and the um, radiologists that they take care of trying to stop the bleeding, they were like, we're wasting blood. And that doctor, the same thing. He didn't, until my mom told him that, uh, you know, I just qualified for the Boston Marathon, he said, we have to go back in there. This guy's not going to expire. And thank God they went back in. Wow, amazing. So that three months in bed after you wake up, you'd essentially been cut in half. Yeah. What else is going on with your body? Well, so I broke every bone in my left leg, a whole compound fracture, so I could see, you know, there were these external fixators are holding my bones together. Right side of my pelvis was shattered. Right shoulder was shattered. And the, the worst damage was, like you said, I was basically cut in half. My right leg, they had described to me as no longer functionally attached to my body. It was just being held together by soft tissue and muscle. My femoral artery was severed, and my abdominal wall was torn out. I'm also losing weight like crazy because I'm in, I'm in a hospital bed, you know, on fluids and a feeding tube inside of my, inside of my chest. So I think I, I went in the hospital at 178 pounds in the best shape of my life. And five months later, I leave the hospital at 122. But I remember when I was finally getting out of bed and getting to a mirror to shave or to start brushing my teeth, I, I just looked in the mirror. I'm like, wow, I look like my 80-year-old grandfather. Like I aged so much. It was just the hollowness in my eyes, the cheeks. Everything was just so drawn out. Uh, I was like, "This is not good," and that was like my first one. I looked at my, I didn't want to, I didn't want to do any of this anymore. Like I was growing a beard now. I'm like, I'm not shaving. I'm not looking in the mirror. Um, you know, you, you outside of being poked and prodded every night by everyone in the freaking hospital, you lose all sense of dignity. You know, they're wiping you here, cleaning you here, and you're like, "Oh my God, what's happening? <laughs> Isn't it bad enough I get hit by a bus?" <laughs> Where were you emotionally during those three months? It was definitely a, a, a tremendous roller coaster. Uh, at least I, I rode the roller coaster t at times to make people feel better. 
but I was on a slippery slope back down into a, probably a deeper depression than I was after September 11th. Um, I, I know for a fact that you know I, 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 that some people came to visit and either left unhappy or never returned because I either threw them out or I was just rude. My mom would come in and yell at me. Uh, you know, you can't be like that with people. And I'm like, you know, I guess I guess I get a pass. I was hit by the bus. I just I don't not in the mood to see people right now. Um, so it was kind of funny. I was in my room and my parents had another room, and they saw my visitors. <laughs> if I did, oh, we'll go ask. But and I was like, no. So I was shunning people away from me. Um, you know, the depression I was having wasn't a full-out pity party. It wasn't a why me specifically. Why did I get hit by this bus? It was more of why did I live? And why, do, why am I going through this ordeal? You know, I don't understand it. And that, 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 that spiraled for, you know, three to, to nine months post-accident. I was I left the hospital in five, so the next four in my in my apartment with my brother taking care of me, it just was getting bad, getting getting worse. And what was the changing point where you started to heal emotionally and and regain your strength physically? Well, I have I have a vivid memory of that point, and it was all due to my mother. Um, we had gone to a doctor's appointment. Now at this point, I'm still in a wheelchair part time. And I'm, I'm hanging my hopes, mental recovery hopes, on, um, on a surgery to close my abdomen and reverse my colostomy bag. And I, I remember going to the doctor and it, not the main doctor, but one of his assistants, you know, basically did all the testing. And then he's like, oh, you know, Dr. Milson will come in to see you. But, you know, I just want to let you know, Ms. Long, it, it doesn't look good. And... They t- my parents took me to lunch, and, and, and at that moment, I said to my mom and dad, uh, I just said, uh, I was angry. And I said, I- I'm glad you prayed. I'm glad you believe your prayers to be answered because I'm here. I said, but I really wish you had prayed for me to die because no one deserves to live like this. And my dad, like I said, he was a Marine. He started weeping a little bit, tears rolling down his cheeks. And my mother just looked at me. She put her hands down on the table firmly, and she said, enough's enough. And she basically said, look, if you want to be a miserable SOB the rest of your life, then do it by yourself. She goes, we didn't get hit by the bus, but we were with you every day, every surgery, the brothers, your sisters, your fire department family. You know, you're not doing this alone. And, and she, she goes, Matthew, she goes, you're not the only person in this world that's suffering. And it, it didn't hit right away. It was, it, it was a more, more like a, 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 a left hook. And I said, all I wanted was a hug. I took my wheelchair from the table. I tried to leave, but there was two steps leaving the restaurant, so I couldn't get out of the restaurant. I had to ask them to take me home. You know, it all unfolded very quickly, and two weeks went by. And I, and I just remember thinking that my mom was right. And I remember thinking about how I changed my attitude after September 11th, and now I've looked back at my life and said, hey, you were always happiest when you were dreaming. You were always happiest when you are setting a goal for yourself. Well, why not set a goal to get out of this wheelchair? Why not set a goal to rebuild your strength? Why not set a goal to run again? And that's it. That's, that became my, my new mantra every morning was I will. And every day I went to therapy, I went to the gym, I worked out, my brother took me here and there, my attitude changed. I had ups and downs, it wasn't instant, but my attitude, bottom line, was I will get this done. And from then on, it, it started, I started seeing progress. And what was the arc of the physical progress? You're in a wheelchair part-time, you're in a cane, walk me through that step back to running the New York City Marathon for the second time. So for a full year, I'm going three days a week to therapy, two days a week therapy is coming to my house, and I'm going to the gym. I, you know, I, talked to, I was very fortunate to have a support crew. Uh, I was very, also very fortunate to be able to afford to pay my therapist to come and treat me. But when I went to the gym, I asked the trainer, I said, hey, you think you'd help me? He goes, I remember you. I used to see you in here a lot. He goes, I'll help you, no problem. And he didn't charge me. And all he was doing was getting me in and out of machines that I couldn't get into. Great guy. 
Ed, Ed, um, his last name will come to me, but trainer Ed gets a plug. Um, I would say it was a solid year of rebuilding, learning how to walk again. Probably three months before I said goodbye to the wheelchair, went to uh, Canadian crutches or Lost Rand uh, crutches. They call it, where they go up your arm a little bit, give you more stability. Uh, after six months, I was down to a cane. And that's when I started, once I got to a cane, that's when I started to look for uh, places outside of New York. I, I needed to leave. Um, everyone knew me as the busboy. And I was still waiting on one more surgery. So not only was I training physically to um, get stronger and possibly run again, but I was also training my insides for this reversal and closure of the abdominals. So that surgery came about a full year after leaving the hospital. And um, that lasted 13 hours. Every doctor that worked on me came in that day while I was open and on the table, took a peek at their handiwork, fixed whatever they could fix, uh, and I got lucky. And my abdominal was closed and fully reconstructed. And at that moment, I was like, okay, I, I still had a, a long road of, of you know, how I was going to function ahead of me. But I started to look about how, how, how can I take a break from being Matt Long, the bar owner, the firefighter, where can I go? Who am I going to find that's going to help me to the next level? And that brought me to Arizona. And what did you find in Arizona? You know, I found two young guys that would never tell anyone they couldn't do anything. I sent emails to many places, California, or I was in all warm weather states, and uh, I wanted to go for two or three months of, of intense rehabilitation and training. I sent my story, clippings for my story. I sent my, uh, my short version of my medical history. And most people wrote back saying, um, you should have realistic expectations. And I deleted those emails. But the two guys in Arizona, Kyle Harrigan and Mark Delazio, wrote me back saying we would never tell anyone they couldn't run again. And I bought a plane ticket and went outside unseen. And a friend of mine uh, from the fire department, Frank Carino, took, took, came with me. Uh, we rented an apartment and trained with them for a better part of three months, five days a week. What was it like the first time you ran? It was awkward, slow, and painful. But it had some resemblance of running. <laughs> Uh, but it was a, a tremendous uh, mental victory for me. Walk me from there to you're starting to run. It's painful. It's awkward. Eventually, you are back running the New York City Marathon. I run my first mile in April, right before I leave to come home. And, and I told them when I left that um, you know, my goal was to run the New York City Marathon. And the one therapist said, if you run it in November, I'll come and I'll be there. The other, the other trainer, Kyle, he said, I, I can't be there. He goes, but if you have another goal, let me know. So I said, all right. And then I kept that in my pocket because I didn't tell a lot of people. But I wanted to close my story on the marathon. I didn't want the bus to take things from me. And I was a marathoner. I qualified for Boston. So I wanted to go back to the marathon. I also had a deeper and wanted to go back to the, the Ironman. So in 2008, I called Mark. I said, I, I got into the marathon. At this point, I'm working with um, Jim and Phil Wharton from Wharton Health. They're running specialists. They, they work with all the elite uh, marathon runners. And they agreed to, to help me with f functional strength, mobility, um, and really isolating the muscles that I needed to try to fire up because I still have some paralyzations on my right side. Running a marathon is, is physical, but it's equally as mental. So he says, look, you got the mental part. I mean, you got the physical part. You know, you, you, you know what it's like to go 26.2, right? Now, we need to get you ready so you do it with as little pain as possible. Mentally, no problem. You're going to get there. I mean, I was running 16, 17-minute miles. And he set a little program for me, and I went out and tried my best. And I only got to 14 miles. Most marathon runners want to get to 20 before they get to the big day. I got to 14, and my body shut down. 
So it was, it was a, um, it was a six month process where I started to train only on ellipticals and on bikes just so I could have the endurance because I knew it was going to be an eight hour, nine hour day. And, um, yeah, I, I was lucky enough that the Roadrunners Club granted me a spot within the rest of the challenged athletes, which I, I didn't like to say I was a challenged athlete, but an athlete with challenges. And, um, and I started three hours before the rest of the uh, 40,000 runners that year. And finished. And finished, seven hours and 21 minutes. How did that feel? It was amazing. Uh, the, the pain from 20 to 26 or, or 25.11 was uh, crazy. I wanted to stop. I don't know what kept me going. But once I crossed that finish line, the pain went away for a little while. I had doctors there, family, fire department. Um, it really wasn't as much for me as it was for, to let all the people that helped me know that, hey, thanks for not giving up on me. Look what's possible with the right attitude. And then from there, you go back to Ironmans. What's next after the New York City Marathon? Yeah, right after the marathon, I, then, then I told people, I said I had signed up for the Ironman uh, at Lake Placid 2009, and they all thought I was crazy. So, look, I just need to do this. I need to go back, full circle, marathon, check, Ironman, check, and, and then I'm, I'll figure out what I'm going to do in my life. Uh, so, yeah, so I started training right away. Uh, I knew the running was the challenge, so I stayed away from it, kept my body healthy with biking, ellipticals, and swimming. You know, you have, like I said, you have uh, 17 hours to finish this 140.6-mile journey. And when I went as a healthy athlete, I was 11 hours. And when I went back after the accident, I finished in 16 hours, 58 minutes, and 6 seconds. So I, I had, you know, just made it. And, you know, it, it was probably the best uh, finish line I've ever crossed. Did you ever have any anger at the driver? Um, no, I, I really didn't. You know, I, I know I paused there, but I didn't have any anger. Um, it, early on, I realized that he did contact my family. They told him, you know, he, he reached out and the, the owners of the bus reached out. They, I don't think that he, you know, thought that he was going to go out and run on a cyclist today. So I, I didn't have any anger towards him. Plus, the way it was told is he thought he clipped the car that was parked on the corner. So I can only imagine how he felt when he stopped the bus, got out, and, and saw you know, two legs flailing around in the street underneath the bus. Uh, so I thought whatever mental hurdles he's going to have from what happened, what he did, uh, was enough. That he didn't need my anger. I've never met him. Uh, I've, I've never had the need to reach out to him. I hope that, um, that he's heard my story of my comeback and that he feels you know, at peace with what, what, what happened because I'm sure he was worried if I was going to live or die. If you could take back that day, would you? Absolutely not. It sounds so odd. I mean, what would I want? What I, do I want to get hit by a bus again? No. But so many good things in my life have happened after. And if you change the course of one period in your life, everything after that, you risk not having happened. Um, so, no. I've, I've met phenomenal people. Um, You've gotten married, have ch have kids, and and I know for a fact um, that for whatever reason I was chosen to go through that and make the comeback. I know for a fact that I helped someone who was weaker, someone who was struggling, no matter what their struggle was. I've gotten thousands of emails, and I still get them. 12 years later, 15 years later, I still get them that say thank you. And because of you, I'm running. Because of you, I'm not drinking. Because of you, I'm, I'm cancer-free. Because of you, I am happy. I, 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 if so if I was given one wish and asked for that bus not to hit me, what happens to those people? So no. That's amazing. What did you come to understand about yourself as a result of the accident? Oh, that I'm a pretty relentless individual. For whatever reason, I believe things happen for a reason. For whatever reason, I was chosen to hit by this bus because I was relentless. Because I don't have quit in me. 
And that's probably the biggest thing I learned is that, you know, it, do I get to the starting line as quick as, as I want to all the time? No. But when the task is, is given to me and, and I'm, I'm forced to start or encouraged to start, I don't quit. How does the world look different to you now? Well, my world, I mean, is different for me because the accident gave me purpose. I sometimes feel bad that I can't help the person who's emailing me from his or her injuries uh, as far as I'd want to. But, but there's so many emails that I've gotten where I've already helped them without knowing yeah. that, that I'm like, wow. You know, just, there are lots of people, from what my mom said, that have something that they're suffering that's causing them pain, that's causing them to be depressed, that's causing them hardships or holding them back. And... I was given this test not knowing what it would do to others. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. What did you learn about mindset? And what role do you think that played in your healing? It, mindset's everything. I tell my kids all the time, I said, yeah, I t- and I tell corporate executives this, is if you wake up and your first thought of the day is, I can't, then go back to bed. If, if, your mindset will control your destination. That's the way I look at it, and the, the mind controls it all. If I woke up every morning with the two words, I will, and I knew that I'm going to push and push and push until I did. What is the greatest piece of wisdom you learned from your accident and your recovery that you'd like to pass on? No, I, think, I think the best thing I could pass along is that I, I didn't do this by myself. I was going through hell. And if I tried to do it by myself, I'd probably still be there. I leaned on my family and friends. Uh, there was a while when I was pushing them away. But you need support. You need your, your friends. You need your group. You need to reach out to someone. And, and I did it. I reached out to someone who survived an accident and was paralyzed. And I said, I feel bad reaching out to you. You're in a wheelchair. I may walk again. And that gentleman helped me. That gentleman became a friend. And people reach out to me, and I try to pay that back. Set your mind in a positive direction and surround yourself with the positive people that are going to help you achieve your goal without limitation, without expectation. So tell me where you are in your life today. Paint the picture of no. your life. I know you're a husband, you're a father, mm-hmm. you're an entrepreneur, um, your foundation, your speaker. Mm-hmm. Um, where are you now? So I'm uh, still a New Yorker. I live in Rockaway Beach, Queens, New York. Uh, I was set up on a blind date with a with a, a, a mom of two, and we quickly uh, hit it off and got married. Started our own family, so we have uh, now three girls at home. Uh, so I'm surrounded by women. Um, I, I have a great life. My wife is great. My kids are great. Uh, I do travel the country speaking, which is awesome. I don't do it as much as because um, I like being home. You know, look, I credited my doctors for being alive. I credited a lot of people for saving my life. And my doctors always told me that the fact that I was in great shape is what was the first thing that saved my life. So I got involved with a fitness franchise called Orange Theory that's all across the country. And I got involved with that because it's the way I trained. It's, 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 it's training done right. And it's the way I trained when I was marathoning and triathlon and using my heart rate. And I like to inspire people to better their health. I think everything in, in your day works better after a workout. Um, and so yeah, so I'm a fitness professional, uh, I'm a speaker, and I'm a dad. And um, life is pretty good. All right, we're going to end with a little bit of rapid fire. What matters most is? Family. My gift to the world is? My finish lines. My favorite piece of advice is? Follow your heart. My biggest vice is? Margaritas. (laughs) (laughs) I like tequila. (laughs) My favorite hour of the day is? Bedtime. In 10 years, I hope to be? 
In 10 years, I hope to still be moving and strong as possible. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast, as you know. So today we're going to donate to a charity you believe in. Tell me about the charity you're choosing and why. Well, I'm choosing the I Will Foundation. Um, It's my foundation. Um, I started it right after my accident, right when I discovered those two words. And at first, it was supposed to just be a landing page where someone can go to that was in a bad way like I was and say, wow, this guy was in that bad shape and overcame his obstacles and ran a marathon. And I was just going to say, here's my story. How can I help you? And people just started sending me money. So then I started looking for people that needed help. So the foundation has helped uh, a double arm amputee ride his bike across the country and compete in Ironman triathlons with no arms. We built him bikes. Uh, we recently helped a, a brother team that did, uh, they did Ironman Kona. And I don't even know them. I was watching the New York City Marathon and the team Peasy, Kyle and Brett Peasy. One brother has a muscular dystrophy. The other brother has, was pushing him to finish his marathon so he could be, feel like an athlete. And the back wheel just blew up. And people were holding the back of his hand push cart, but the guy's pushing it, so that that one wheel wouldn't hit the ground as he pushed the others. So six people were helping him. I took a picture of his number when they went by. I reached out to him, and my foundation bought him brand new wheels. Wow. And they erased those wheels in the Ironman, made history in Ironman Hawaii this year. Wow. So I help people that have the right attitude get back into life, whatever it is. Matt Long, thank you. Kimmy, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I enjoyed it. That's this week's episode of All the Wiser. I want to thank you for tuning into the conversation today. If you found value in what you've heard on the show, we'd love it if you'd head on over to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's always appreciated. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.